Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from lovehonorandvacuum.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based, and biblical advice for your sex life and marriage. And today we have an awesome podcast coming to you. I'm really excited about this one. I interviewed Beth Allison Barr, the author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood, to talk about her book and the impact that it had on me. But before we get started, a couple of big announcements. First of all, something really exciting. We are very close to hitting a million downloads on the Bear Marriage Podcast. So if you could help me, if you have not subscribed already to Bear Marriage, please do so. Please download some episodes. Let's see if we can get to a million before Christmas. And I really think we can get there with your help. Thank you so much. And also remember to rate and review the podcast anywhere you listen to it. It helps us immensely. Another big shout out. Thank you to Femily. Femily is a woman's wellness company. It's a Christmas. Christian Women's Wellness Company dedicated to helping women with products that just fit with their monthly cycles, that help boost our confidence with our bodies and with everything that goes into being a woman. They have menstrual cups, they have cloth pads, they have some of my favorites, vaginal melts, which are so much more than just a lubricant because they actually help you maintain elasticity and lubrication and all kinds of fun stuff. You can get them in different flavors and you can even order all kinds of different samples to see which ones that you like best. So check out Femilay.com. I will have a link in the listen notes. Also, please remember that our Patreon is available. You can subscribe to for as little as $5 a month and you get access to unfiltered podcasts, an exclusive Facebook group, and so much more. So that's really fun. That will also go in our listen notes. And now, without further ado, I would like to bring on Beth Barr. I am thrilled to bring on the Bear Marriage Podcast, Beth Allison Barr, who is, I feel like we're besties, even though this is the first time we've ever talked to each other. (laughs) I know. I know. It's surprising. It's great to finally see you face to face. Yes, Beth is a history professor at Baylor University, and she is the author of the amazing The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which is making so many ways. And I need to show you this. Look, are you impressed? I dress to match. Yes. (laughs) I like to do this. So we are here to talk about your amazing book, which I devoured when it first came out. I've got it all marked up. I've got a bunch of quotes I want to read out loud. And I have a whole bunch of things to ask you. I thought maybe what we could do is start with your own story, just so people understand your church background. And then I'm going to get into some quotes and questions. So here you are. You're a mom. You're going to a Baptist church, and why don't you tell the story? I did grow up Southern Baptist. My husband and I both grew up Southern Baptist, although I didn't meet him until college. And I've talked about this a little bit before, but I grew up as these, as complementarianism was really revving up, like in the Mm -hmm. late 80s and in the 90s. And so I sort of, throughout my life, have watched it harden. I think the reactions that we're having to women um, are those of us who kind of hit the height of biblical womanhood in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then Mm -hmm. it's been like after 2010, when we started realizing how toxic this was. For listeners who don't know, let's just let's just define complementarianism right off the bat. (laughs) No, that's good. So complementarianism is the newest manifestation of patriarchy in the church. And or at least patriarchy in the American church and complementarianism is a teaching that's really espoused by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, as well as John Piper and the Gospel Coalition, etc. And it argues that women are divinely created differently from men, and that women are created to be under the leadership of men. And that's, that's pretty much it. 
that women are divinely created differently. I mm-hmm. argue in the making of biblical womanhood that this is just same song, different verse of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. patriarchy is a historical institution, a historical structure that has been with mm-hmm. us from the beginning. Um, that puts women under the authority of men. Okay, I was going to read these later, but I I have two quotes that I want to read at the beginning. So this is what Beth writes. Once I finally came face to face with the ugliness and pervasiveness of historical patriarchy, I realized that rather than being different from the world, Christians were just like everyone else in their treatment of women. And then later she says, patriarchy wasn't something that made Christians different. It was something that made them the same. Yes, that revelation is one that I didn't really come to until graduate school, till my graduate mm-hmm. studies. And it is one that that shook me. And I spent mm-hmm. about 15 years grappling with it until I finally came out with the making of biblical womanhood. But my mm-hmm. story is growing up during this time. You know, I think probably the height of biblical womanhood for me was in when I was in college. And then I married my husband. 10 days before I started graduate school at Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he started a master's of divinity program at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary um, Mm -hmm. under the reign of Paige and Dorothy Patterson. And so we had this really interesting sort of graduate experience where I'm in a women's studies program at Chapel Hill, and he's at Southeastern with Paige and Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And so this really interesting um, convergence. But I was still in complementarian circles. I still espoused that men should be the leaders of the home. This wasn't something that really affected me in my marriage very much because my husband's a really good guy. It didn't really play out in our marriage. Where it played out was in our church. And we began to see this. You know, we've been in several churches. Not all of them have been Southern Baptist, but always within the evangelical sphere. But I began to see, especially after I finished my degree and we moved back to Texas, my husband was hired by a church that actually the pastor went to the same seminary that Mark Driscoll went to, which I mm-hmm. need to one day do some more research into what was going on at that seminary at the time. Um, but nonetheless, and we begin to see during our 14 years at that church, we begin to see a increasingly hardened approach to women in the church. We begin to see women disappear from the stage. Women stop being allowed to pray women stop being allowed to teach classes. And in fact, Mm -hmm. the culminating part of our story was when we asked to get a woman to co-teach the high school Sunday school class. And that resulted in us being fired three weeks later. My story frames the making of biblical womanhood, but I always, um, you know, one of the reasons I did this is because I'm an evangelical, I'm a Baptist. And my whole life, the way we shared our story about the church and why we remained in the church was through our testimony. So when I decided to write the making of biblical womanhood, I knew that my peers, the people I was talking to in the church would hear it better if they heard my testimony. So my testimony is not the evidence. My testimony is my plea, my voice Mm -hmm. to the church. The evidence is the history. Is that what you wanted to hear? Yes. Now I think, okay, this is dangerous to say 
obviously, but I think I might be slightly older than you. I don't know how old you are. I'm 51. So you can okay. agree or disagree if I'm slightly I, older. I'm a little bit younger. I, I'm four, I turned 46 in a couple of weeks. Okay. So you're five years younger. So I remember in 1991, my husband and I were in a church and they were debating whether or not women could be elders. And we were just so fed up with the whole thing. And I remember both of us turning to each other and saying in 25 years, this is not going to be an issue. Like, obviously women, like, because that's the direction it was going at that point in time, especially in Canada. And if you had told me then that the church would be more patriarchal today than it was, then I would not have believed you. But something really did shift in that late nineties. I remember in, in the early two thousands, I was leading a praise team at a Baptist church and the deacons board spent a year debating whether I was allowed to say anything between the songs, because at one point, the very first time I led worship, I said, before you sing this next song, take the concerns of the week and picture yourself leaving them at the foot of the cross. And then we sang, I see the cross. And they debated for a year whether that was me teaching and that whether that was appropriate because I was a woman. And, you know, that was, that was really difficult, but this is definitely an issue in churches. So what I find so interesting about your approach and my approach, because we actually have a lot in common. We did this differently, but in some ways our approaches were very similar because a lot of books have been written about whether or not men and women are equal in God's eyes, whether we should be equal in the church or whatever. And the approach has been, let's look at the Greek right? Like, and there's nothing wrong with that approach. (laughs) I love that approach. I think it's so important to look Uh at whether it's Kefali or Archon when there's talking about head, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very important. But we've been going around in circles forever and not getting anywhere. And so what I did on the sex front was I said, look, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. So let's take a huge survey and let's look at the evidence. And what you did was you did a similar thing. You said, let's just think about this logically. (laughs) Okay. If biblical womanhood, the way that we see it today with men and women occupying different roles with um, women being subservient to men, men with a hierarchical structure, if that were honestly the way that God intended and that it had been understood forever throughout history that this was obvious, then we would see it throughout history. And you as a historian went back throughout history and said, but it ain't there. <laughs> well, and it's, it's different. I mean, that's the thing. It, it shapeshifts. Yes. It's not based on the Bible. It's based on culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it changes. There's this structure that women are subordinated to men, which a lot of history. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would actually argue, I talk about this in the book. I would argue that we see the beginning of patriarchy in the aftermath of the fall. And a mm-hmm. lot of people have, I mean, that's yes. clearly, it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It does yes. not say God wants this to happen. It does yeah. not say this is the best thing for you. It says, because of what happened, this is going to be the consequence. That is what we, what we see is this mm-hmm. is, this is a consequence, but that also doesn't mean that this is what God wants us to stay with. I mean, God doesn't want us to stay in the consequent in sin. He doesn't want us to stay living in sin. So it's crazy to me how we've perpetuated a system that was born in sin. And one of the big points that you make, and I'd like you to unpack this maybe, and then we'll look at a couple of examples, is that while there's always been patriarchy in the church, so there's always been men over women, there's always been that consequence of, you know, the fall, et cetera, et cetera. 
the reasons behind it have shifted. Right. Yes. So before 1900, 1800, whatever, it was argued that women were just simply inferior men. But today we know that you can't argue that because we know that we can't argue that women are inferior. And so they've totally changed the argument. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, this is what's so crazy about it. You know, I mean, on the one hand, I see quotes from people like, you know, especially CBMW folk. And they're like, this is written in the stars. I actually think Elizabeth Elliot, I saw your beautiful post on Elizabeth Elliot. It's something that I thought about before that she was just a traumatized woman. And reading mm-hmm. how you went through her life, I was like, oh, yeah, that's so clearly what it is. But I think she has a quote somewhere where she says that, you know, this women's um, subordination is written in the stars. And mm-hmm. so on the one hand, they're right about that. Patriarchy has been with us from the beginning of history, but it is not what God intended. It is not in the sense biblical. And what we can see with that is, for example, in the ancient world, um, there is not actually Christian. If we think about, you know, the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't Christian. It was what Mm -hmm. we would call pagan, non-Christian. And it taught that women were less than men. It taught that women belonged under the authority of men. It taught that women were not able to make decisions and shouldn't be out in public and leadership. And the reason it Mm -hmm. taught this is because it said that women's bodies were deformed that women were imperfect men and that, um, you know, it was a, something that happened that if, if, if a child is created perfectly, it will turn out male, but if something is wrong with it, it turns out uh, female. And so that was the basis of women's subordination was that they were inferior. This is something that's picked up by Mm -hmm. early church fathers. It is something that continues in the medieval world. And what we see in the medieval world is we see that women could escape this subordination by giving up their sex, by acting more like men. And so we see a lot of these early virgin martyr stories and and throughout the medieval world where we see these women who take on the authority of men, who take on leadership abilities in the church, who preach, teach, even exercise at the altar. And the reason they're able to do this is because they have forsaken their female identity. And lots of the ways they're Mm -hmm. described, they're described like men. They're described, Mm -hmm. you know, they take on these male characteristics. So by by giving up what makes them a woman, they are able to gain the authority of a man, which is also interesting. If you think about in the modern world, we don't like to talk at all about or modern Christians don't like to talk at all about taking on the characteristics of the of the opposite sex. You know, we want to keep everyone. And it's funny that this is a modern, this very binary, I'm going to use that word carefully, this very binary approach is a very modern approach. It's born in Mm -hmm. modernism. It's not the way that people viewed gender before, really before the early modern world. So um, before the scientific revolution. So what happened after the Reformation is we see a shift in this. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Part of it is the changing economic and political landscape of Europe. Part of it's the scientific revolution that begins to argue that women's bodies are created for childbearing. Therefore, that's all women should do, you know. Um, And then also they started when we get into the 18th and 19th century, they start with examining women's brain sizes. And they say that women's skulls are smaller than men, which means that women are less intelligent than men. Um, All sorts of lovely, you know, one of the diagrams I use in my class um, about the 19th century shows the woman's brain and like it's filled with her children, her husband, cooking, making her house pretty. 
and there's nothing else in her brain for that's all her brain has room for. Um, right. And so anyway, so this idea that this is really what women are created for. But at the same time, as you as you spoke, after the sort of reformation, people begin to argue that women are created in the image of God. There's not something wrong with them. There's not something fundamentally wrong with them. So in order for patriarchy to endure, in order for men to remain in power, in order for men to still claim the ability to be the primary preachers Mm -hmm. and teachers and leaders of the church, they have to change their argument. This is exactly what they do. And so they begin to argue that women, yes, they're equal in, in created in the image of God, but God created them differently and they draw right. on the scientific revolution. They draw on all of this stuff that's already sort of in the cultural water. And they say women are divinely created not to lead and to be under the authority of men. And that right. if you, I love, you know, the early 20th century, we have the um, Princeton theological seminary guy. Uh, what's his name? Warbach. I can't remember his name right now, but he has this lovely quote where he says that, it doesn't matter if you like, if you like or don't like what Paul says about women. He said it, and that's that. And so, mm-hmm. sort of this idea: you can't argue anymore because God mm-hmm. created women differently from men and under male leadership, and that's the way of the world. And that, of course, gives birth to what we see: this backlash against second wave feminism with the Council mm-hmm. for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, which brings in this, and they've added something else to it. They've added this creation order thing, which is just yeah. really funny if you really think about it, where they say, because men are created before women, men are over women. And you're like, mm-hmm. you just really had to take one little piece out of the whole creation story out of context to make that argument. Yeah, um, especially because throughout scripture, yeah. Jesus is so. I mean, we see over and over again, the firstborn is not the one that is preeminent. Like David was the last born. It's Jacob who gets the promise, not Esau. Um, In Colossians, it talks about how, you know, yeah, anyway, yes. (laughs) It doesn't make sense theologically at all. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's sort of what, uh, and that's one of the main arguments I make in the book is that yes, patriarchy is there, but it shapeshifts. It isn't based on the Bible. It's based on what we carry to the Bible. Right. And so it's really more cultural. Now, you're a professor of medieval history, and I didn't know a lot of the stories that you shared. I loved your your book is is full of lots of stories of individual women, especially in medieval times, who did take on a leadership role and did speak up. And Christians actually revered these women for doing so. Um, And I was wondering if you could share even just about one of them. I love, I, I love Christine. Yes. No, Christine is a fantastic story. And um, she's one that her story is amazing because not only of what she did, but because of the circumstances around her that enabled her to do it. Christine de Pizan, she's born in the 14th century. She's born, she's actually from Italy. Her family's from Italy, but her dad gets picked up by the French court. And he actually goes and works sort of, you know, he works for the French king. And so she's raised in this court environment. Um, Her father was very keen that she was educated. And so women Mm -hmm. at the time, whether or not women were educated was really dependent upon if their families pushed for it and allowed for Mm -hmm. it. Um, And so she didn't go to university or anything like that, but she was trained at home and her father got her, you know, gave her very good education. Um, She married a guy at court and very shortly after 
like everything in her life goes wrong. She's really young. She's like in her, you know, early twenties and she Mm -hmm. has three kids. Her dad dies, her husband dies. They lose all their family income and she's left. She's a single woman, a single parent in the medieval world, supporting not just her kids and herself, but also supporting other members of her extended family. And Mm -hmm. what she does is she puts what she knows. She uses what she has to get what she needs. We call this the economy of makeshift. She uses what she has to get what she needs. And what she has is her education. And she begins writing poetry. She begins writing history. And she begins selling what she writes to the nobility at the French court. And they really like what she writes and they start paying her. And eventually she's taken on by the by the court and sort of becomes the royal historian for the court and writes the stories. And so she, you know, she supports, I mean, she is a single mm-hmm. working woman in the medieval world who supports her family by her pen. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a phenomenal story. And not only that, but she also then begins to take on these larger issues of female oppression. Now, mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate about whether Christine de Pizan is what we consider to be a feminist. Feminist is this modern term we use for women who realize that there are structures that, that oppress women and make women's lives very difficult and hurt women. And so they take on an activist approach to try mm-hmm. to make life better for women, to change laws, to change politics, to change the economy, to make women's lives better. So mm-hmm. it's a very modern concept, but at the same time, we do see some women in the past who just who show some of these characteristics, and Christine is one of these. And she, there's a trashy romance novel. You would have, you would love it, Sheila. <laughs> romance novel going around called The Romance of the Rose. And I, we can talk about this here because this is bare marriage. And the, uh-huh. the metaphor in it is this man who is seeking to pluck a rosebud. You know, we know exactly what that means. And yeah. it is, it's, it's, it's a trashy romance and everybody's reading it. It starts off sort of not so bad. It kind of starts off with maybe like Twilight, okay, which, you know, there's mm-hmm. all these horrific things in Twilight, but it's not it's not porn. It's not anything. And then it, it, this text, The Romance of the Rose, it gets revised and it moves uh-huh. from being Twilight to Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay. Sort of what okay. So it's, I, that's a good way to describe what happens to it. And this is when Christine de Pizan gets infuriated. And she sees women and men reading this text. She sees them making fun of women in regards to what's in the text. And she begins writing a series of letters where she takes on this text. And what she essentially says in these letters is not only is this wrong about women, but it hurts women. She says, Mm -hmm. when we teach men and women that women are intellectually inferior, that women are only sex objects, that it damages real women. And she says, Mm -hmm. we can't stand for this. And so she writes this campaign against it, this series of letters. And then she also writes sort of her primary, I would say probably her greatest text. She writes the Book of the City of Ladies. And the Book of the City of Ladies, in some ways, in fact, when one of my graduate students read the introduction to the making of biblical womanhood, she immediately texted me and she said, Beth, you were channeling Christine. My whole sort of thing, you know, brick by brick, I can show you how this was built brick by brick, century by century. I was channeling Christine de Pizan because that's what Mm -hmm. she does in the book of City of Ladies. She says, let me show you what women have done and let me show you how brick by brick they have built 
this amazing intellectual world that men benefit from. And she says, so you don't tell me that women can't do anything else because God made women to be just as essentially capable and successful Mm -hmm. and significant as men. And so mm-hmm, that's what the mm-hmm. Book of City of Ladies does. So Christine is, is this amazing figure. I think she exemplifies for us how women throughout church history and throughout history have always known that something is wrong with treating women as less than men. And they speak out against it. Right. I love that. Okay, I'm going to get to another quote here. You, you bring this up when you're talking about all of these women that you talk about. You say, the problem wasn't a lack of biblical and historical evidence for women to serve as leaders along with men in the church. The problem was male clergy who undermined the evidence. Yeah. yeah. Is that what still happens? I'm thinking of, um, I haven't responded formally to it yet, but I probably will to Kevin DeYoung's review. Of my yeah, hold on. Don't, oh, don't bring that up. up. We're going to, we're going to go there. Okay, we're going to go there. (laughs) Let me just say this. This is something that we see continue. And what happened, what I drew out in, um, particularly in the medieval world, was this shift in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. We really see the medieval church crystallizing in its authority and power. And oftentimes, I think as Protestants, we think that the medieval church like formed uh, back in the third, fourth century, and always had the Pope as the power, and always right. had all of the bishops, and it like sort of, you know, always was this um, significant force of power. That's actually not true. Um, it, it has a history. It took a while for it to develop. In the, uh, the 10th through the 12th centuries, it's really crystallizing its power and authority in Europe. This is when we see the power of the Pope actually begin to grow. Um, It's not until Mm -hmm. the 13th century that we have a really powerful Pope. But nonetheless, we see all of these things crystallizing. And one of the problems that the church was running into was it had all these married priests. And married priests had wives, had children, and their children were inheriting their priests, you know, their, their positions, their clerical positions. And Mm -hmm. this was causing a problem because instead of the church being able to appoint who was over these areas, people were just inheriting it. And Mm -hmm. they were also nobles who owned the land that these churches were on, were also giving it to families and saying, this is your family. You can be, you know, this is what your family is to do to run this church. So the church was reasserting its authority. And one of the things it took on was it wanted to be able to appoint all of the bishops and the priests and the clergy. So it had to get rid of nepotism. Uh, and yeah. so it began to fight for what we now know as clerical celibacy, where priests okay. can't be married. And it used arguments that only the perfect body of a man can mm-hmm. handle the perfect body of Jesus, of a male God. And mm-hmm. so it began to use these arguments and it began to fight for clerical celibacy part of what it did with this is it began to undermine the role of women in the church. It had to discredit women. It had to say that there was something seriously wrong with women's bodies that not only made them inferior, but made them Mm -hmm. impure. And so we begin Mm -hmm. to see all of these purity laws. You know, we think about purity culture today, medieval purity culture, which said that even if a woman even gets close to an altar, she taints it. And so they begin to make these rules. Women can't, you know, get near the altar. They can't touch the altar. They have to be distant from the priest, all of this sort of stuff, these purity laws, which were created not really because women are impure, but were created to keep priests from Mm -hmm. 
marrying women and from having children. So yeah, so, they were created to, to, to keep the power in the yeah. church. So it really That's wasn't right. about women. It was about power. Yeah. Yep. So and this, this is one story of many like this throughout church history. One thing that really hit me that I'd never really understood before when I read your book too, was that in the period before the Reformation, there actually was a lot of equality spiritually between your average man and your average woman, because yes. the inequality was not between men and women. It was between the priests and the laity. Yes, that's exactly right. And I found that really, really interesting. It's something that has struck me. I think, you know, as historians, we always also approach what we study from our own perspective. And so I think mm -hmm. some of these things were more visible to me because I'm an evangelical woman. And it really mm -hmm. struck me early on in my graduate studies as I began to read these sermons about, you know, directed to men, directed to women, et cetera. And I began to realize that women are not emphasized by their role as wife. And this was mm -hmm. something incredibly mind, mm -hmm. you know, boggling to me because I mean, think about the average evangelical sermons that you listen to throughout a year. I mean, how often, I mean, when women are brought up in the sermons, they are almost always brought up in their role as wife and mother. Mm -hmm. That's their primary thing. We can even think about, there's been lots of jokes about, you know, when you describe a woman, you describe her by her role as mm -hmm. wife and mother. Uh, and so there's lots of, we make a lot of fun of that, but nonetheless, it's true. And what I saw mm -hmm. in the medieval church in these medieval sermons is that women were rarely described by their role as wife and mother. Um, mm -hmm. And so what was important to the priest was not that women were married, but that women came, you know, was women's individual soul. And mm -hmm. so both ordinary men and ordinary women in the church really were on somewhat of a level playing field before, before God. They both mm -hmm. needed the priest and the priest needed to relate to them in very similar ways right. because it didn't matter that the woman, you know, the spiritual authority of the husband didn't really count here. What counted was the spiritual authority of the priest. It strangely leveled the field for yes. women in the medieval world. Yes. And then the reformation comes, we get rid of the priesthood and, and then we start looking yeah. at patriarchy in a whole new way. And of course your thesis yeah again, is just that patriarchy has been throughout history, but it's looked different. And so our whole idea of this biblical patriarchy, well, you can't find it in history because it takes different exactly. forms and it's really more exactly. about culture than it is about exactly. the Bible. Yeah. Exactly. And I love that. Another thing that you bring out, which I thought was so interesting talking about the medieval world is the use of gender inclusive language, yeah. because we get really upset about that today. <laughs> and a lot of complementarian scholars get quite upset if Bibles try to include gender inclusive language. And yet you give example upon example upon example of how in the medieval world, priests and writers did use gender inclusive language to include women. Right. And so again, let me just let me just read to you. Um, this modern evangelicals denounce gender inclusive language as a dangerous product of feminism. Medieval clergy use gender inclusive language to better care for their parishioners. Yes. Yeah, I know. This is one of those things, too, that struck me because I'm an evangelical woman as I was getting into the sources and began reading, began to read these medieval sermons, especially ones written by a guy named John Mark in the late 14th, early 15th century. And it was a really popular sermon collection. And what happens to it in the early 15th century, you know, everybody's copying it and using it. It's like the most popular sermon collection in late mm -hmm. medieval England. And as they copy it, 
there becomes, there's this whole group of them that are really, you know, 1425 to 1450, a little before, a little after, and they become incredibly gender inclusive. Like they're mm -hmm. opening, you know, you can tell that ordinary priests who are dealing with women and men every day in the parish are getting a hold of these things and they are writing them to what they speak. And so, you know, they start off with now good men and women. And then in, you know, Bible verses, they'll change, they'll say, they'll add women into the Bible verses. In fact, there's one mm -hmm. sermon manuscript that I use it as in my first book, The Pastoral Care of Women. They actually were writing the sermon and they forgot to include the word men. And they actually had to go back and insert the word men in because they had instead, you know, it was just directed to good women. And so they uh -huh. had to go back and insert. So, I mean, it's this very different perspective. And yet, if we think about, you know, today, now, if you try to say, well, men, the word men doesn't include women. So you, mm -hmm. if you're talking to both men and women, you should say men and women. And now if you say that, you are automatically labeled as a, um, you know, very liberal feminist, you know, scholar right. who doesn't take the authority right. of scripture seriously. And I'm right. looking at this and I'm like, y'all, this is something they were doing in the medieval world. This is not a product of second wave feminism. This is yeah. a product of understanding that women and men are both in the church. English is a bad language. Yeah, because because again, in, in the Greek, there are two words that we translate yes. man. One is actual men. I think that's vir, V-I-R. And one is humankind, which is homo yeah. or something. Homo. Yeah. yeah. And people have gotten really upset if we try to translate the one that means humankind as men and women um, when the, when the new international version did that, when the new revised standard version did that, people have gotten very upset and gone. Yeah. And, and so they did the ESV instead, which keeps it all very male. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just, it shows how much culture shapes and what we carry to the Bible. Um, and that English translations were really born in a world that excluded women from language. Yeah. So here you are. So you, so you've, you've traced it. Um, you've looked at, what women actually did in the medieval times and how they, they were seen as a spiritual authority. They were able to speak with authority often when they let go of their sex. You traced how things changed at the Reformation. And then things have changed more recently too, because there's a word that a lot of people may not understand. It, it's ontological. <laughs> so, and what that word means is that before, and ontological means of, of the actual substance, like yeah. that before the argument was that women actually were inferior so that they were ontologically inferior. They were, their actual substance was inferior yes. to men's. Now that we can't make that argument, instead, the more modern argument has been that women and men are equal, but they're created with different roles. Right. And what you're trying to get the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood to admit <laughs> is that this is a new argument. This was yeah. not the argument that was present in medieval times or at the Reformation or anything, that this is a new argument. It's not like it's the actual biblical interpretation that everybody has always had. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And there's so much historical evidence that supports this. I mean, you can always find outliers who say strange things throughout history. I and mean, if we went through and yeah. cherry picked the outliers, you know, that, yes. that would be fun in of itself. But at the same time, um, there's a great deal of historical evidence. In fact, another book that the Gospel Coalition has gone after, although it hasn't gotten nearly as much attention, is a book got by a guy named William Witt, and it's called Icons of Christ. And he does a fantastic job sort of unpacking um, from both the Catholic and the Protestant perspective, the history of this shift 
in how women are perceived. And this idea, you know, essentially showing this ontological, you know, how this has become part of this modern argument and that it's just not historically grounded at all. Mm -hmm. um, it's mm -hmm. something new that we had to make because we can no longer argue that women and men are not equal before yes. God. So now we have to say they're different but separate. I do not know how people do not hear that phrase and do not immediately hear separate but equal. I know! It is crazy. I'm like, do you not, this is the same thing, you know, yeah. what Jim Crow laws did. It's just bizarre how we have compartmentalized. But then again, mm -hmm. and people may not like this, but it's true. A lot of the churches and the arguments that ground, that argue that women are different from men mm -hmm. and have different roles from men are the same churches and the same theologies that also supported racism and slavery. Yeah. And you know, yeah. they you cannot separate these two these two structures. So on the yeah. other hand, I'm not surprised at all because it's they're using the same yes. tactics, you know, yes. separate but equal. Um, so anyway, and it's uh, it's not it's not biblical. I mean, they've created yeah. this. I hope you are enjoying this conversation with Beth Allison Barr as much as I enjoyed having it. And I have some amazing news for you on December sixth at nine o'clock p.m. Eastern time. We are going to have a fireside chat called Tea and Tent Pegs with Beth Allison Barr, myself, and Kristen Cobes Dumay, the author of Jesus and John Wayne. So the three of us, the three amigos, are going to get together for a webinar. It's going to be hosted by Debbie Abraham from the Where Do We Go From Here podcast. And we're just going to talk about how each of our books impacted each of the other, other people on the webinar. It's totally free. All you have to do is register. And the link for that is in the listen notes for this podcast. So please stop listening right now, hit pause and go and register for Tea and Tent Pegs, December 6th, 9 p.m. EST, because it is going to be awesome. Let's talk heresy because <laughs> heresies are always fun. Yes. Yes, so complementarians, people who want men to be in power had a problem because they could no longer argue that women are inferior to men. And so they have to change the argument that women have a different role, but it's just as nice and it's just as great. And, <laughs> and, and you're just as equal yes. and loved, but it's just a different role. Um, and the way they did that was by comparing it to the Godhead, mm -hmm. <laughs> essentially by arguing. And this, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And on the one hand, I know that not all complementarians believe this. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, the fact that this argument was put forward as valid by mm -hmm. so many of these scholars the, and pastors, and the fact that it has infiltrated, um, mm -hmm. you know, there, were, there was actually a whole section that I had that got cut because it was too long, where I traced out Bruce Ware's book, um, oh. on his children's book, Big Truths for Little Hearts. Oh, dear. Uh, which is, oh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and it, it it starts teaching this, um, you know, about how Jesus and the heresy that we are talking about is Arianism. Um, mm -hmm. I've gotten some pushback because people are like, well, eternal subordination of the sun or whatever, you know, it has very, it has lots of acronyms, but I use eternal subordination of the sun because it makes the most sense, mm -hmm. um, ESS. But some people are like, oh, it's not exactly the same as Arianism mm -hmm. because you're not arguing that Jesus is a created being. And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. yeah, that's fair. But Arianism is a catch-all term that mm -hmm. has encapsulated these heresies from the Nicene era all the way through the modern. And the main mm -hmm. component of Arianism is that it teaches that Jesus 
is um, subordinate to God the Father, and that this yeah. is rooted in his nature, which yeah. makes Jesus not the same substance as God the Father, which is right. to God's heresy. Yeah, because what, what eternal subordination said, the reason this mattered to complementarianism is that if they could show that Jesus was always subordinate to the Father, but right. still equal, then you could have women always subordinate to men, but still being equal. But you could exactly. still make the argument that they're equal. And so they chose to change the entire doctrine of the Trinity yes. in order to prop up this idea that women must be eternally under men. Yes. And it, I mean, when you hear it spelled out the way you just did, which is exactly mm -hmm. what happened. I mean, they can argue against it and say, that's not what they did, but we mm -hmm. can trace out when they begin to make this argument and why they begin to make this argument. And it is completely to support female subordination and to make sure that women can't be preachers. Um, right. That is why they begin to make this argument. And it fundamentally changes Christianity because mm -hmm. it puts in that Jesus is not the same substance as God the Father. So mm -hmm. whatever way you want to slice it, this is Arianism. And it was condemned by the Council of Nicaea. And the Council mm -hmm. of Nicaea said that anyone who espouses this is not Christian. Right. And so, I mean, I just want that to sink in. Uh, yeah. Because if we apply that to the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, they are outside the sphere of orthodoxy. And mm -hmm. that is dangerous. You know, I swear at least two or three times a week, I have to argue against eternal subordination of the sun on the blog or on my social media, because yeah. I'll see someone saying something about marriage and I get tagged and all of this stuff. Right. I'm sure you do too now. So, you know, so stuff, I, people I don't even follow, I get tagged and yeah. they'll be saying something about, you know, women always being under the man, just like Jesus is under the father and how beautiful this is. And I'm like, you know, that's not Christian, right? Like, you know, that yeah. what you're arguing is actually a different religion because that's, that's not Christianity. And it's really, it's tiring. Yeah, so speaking of, speaking of that, yeah. I want to read a couple of your like barn burner um, sentences yeah. at the end. Uh, so you've made this incredible argument throughout the book and really everyone needs to get it. Making a biblical womanhood, Beth Allison Barr. It's really making some great waves. And I, I just want to read some of your sentences that, you know, we could put on bumper stickers and you probably have, but anyway, <laughs> the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing Christians that oppression is godly. I did not realize that quote was going to make such a big splash as it did. I, I remember writing it and it wasn't something mm -hmm. I really planned. It was just all of a sudden I realized that that movie is something I've been thinking about for a long yeah, time. Yeah, you quoted you quoted the usual suspects and how yeah, um, the Kevin yeah. Spacey character said the greatest trick yeah. the devil ever pulled was convince people he didn't exist. And, yes, and I just it just suddenly clicked it. You know, I was like, this is exactly what's going on here. And so it's really funny because I it's one of those things you write and you remember writing it. And I didn't really plan to write it. It just kind of mm -hmm. came out. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, but it but it encapsulates what's going. Yeah, on. but it's amazing how many women. And I find it really sad um, that women are often the biggest proponents yeah. of our own subordination, like the idea that women can't speak with authority. You know, last month on the blog, I did this whole series on direct communication and how 
women are told that you can't speak personally or directly to a man because it might undermine his masculinity. So John Piper says that if a woman has to give directions to a man, um, so if, if, if he, if she has to give directions personally to a man, she must be sure to give those directions, not personal and not be direct. Like, ah, it's crazy. It's yeah, just, you know, and I'm in academia and this actually plays out, you know, we'll see, because we can see it on like when women are going up for promotion or something like that. And sometimes on their, the ballots that people fill out to say whether or not they think should, they should be promoted. Sometimes they will criticize women. Like they're too outspoken in the faculty meeting or they're too mm-hmm. abrasive. And the thing is, is they're not doing anything differently than what men do. It's just that they're mm-hmm. women, they're women. Yeah. Anyway, this is something that even me, I've had to learn to be able to say what I think, which is not often something men have to learn to do. Yeah, exactly. Okay, some more stuff. You said by forgetting our past, and what you mean by that is um, the women you wrote about in the medieval times, the history of the church. So by forgetting our past, especially women who don't fit into the narrative that some evangelicals tell, we have made it easier to accept the quote unquote, truth of biblical womanhood. We don't remember anything different. Yes. Yeah. Because we think the church has always been exactly the way it is today. Exactly. Our, our historical amnesia. This is not just true for women. It's true in all sorts of areas, but it is so true for women because one of the, the biggest arguments that proponents of complementarianism make is that second wave of feminism introduced something new. And that was mm-hmm. women in leadership and women preaching. And they say, this is not, nothing that ever happened before. Um, this is ungodly mm-hmm. and this is anomalous and this is a product of feminism. And mm-hmm. historically, that is untrue. Historically, mm-hmm. it is untrue. But we can look at these church histories that mm-hmm. they are teaching in seminary that these men are writing and they are intentionally writing women out of leadership roles. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, very scary. Okay, one more. Evidence shows me that just because complementarianism uses biblical texts doesn't mean that it reflects biblical truth. Biblical womanhood is Christian patriarchy. The only reason it continues to flourish is because women and men, just like you and me, continue to support it. What if we all just stopped supporting it? I think that's actually the sentence that has made me such a target because not only did I point out the flaws in complementarianism, not only did I situate it historically, but then I gave a call for action. That um, the only reason we buy this narrative is Mm -hmm. because we buy it, because Mm -hmm. we sit and listen. I mean, you know, I actually did not read Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood until relatively recently. In fact, one day when I was reading it, um, I actually had an outburst on Twitter where I just was laughing and I was just like, y'all, this is what we have bought. This is so illogical and it is so not based upon historical fact. I was like, this is what has subordinated women for so many, this is what we live in fear of. And I'm like, this is shredded by peer review. So anyway, it was, I try not to laugh at people publicly, but it is just, it is mind boggling that this is what has made us so afraid Mm -hmm. and made women feel like we can't speak. But, you know, this is one of my big things, and this is why I have been naming names. I mean, I don't know what else I could say about love and respect, although (laughs) 
even just today, I was sent some more stuff about love and respect that I want to talk about, uh, about how it's being used in some seminaries. But, you know, I have spoken out about very, very big books, Love and Respect, Every Man's Battle, For Women Only, Power of a Praying Wife. These are dangerous books and they will continue to sell until we stop buying them. And until when churches do marriage studies of love and respect, people start speaking up and saying, no, I'm not going to go. Yeah. And we just, we have the choice. We have the choice what churches to go to. There are healthy churches out there that love Jesus <laughs> and, that, and that love the Bible. There really are. And we don't need to keep supporting those that refuse to treat women as human beings. Yes. No, I mean, I mean, I'm exactly with you. And I, I think this is one of the reasons why you're getting so much pushback too, is because not mm-hmm. only are we challenging ideas about women, but we are challenging a power structure that generates money yeah. for certain institutions. Um, because yeah. when you pull the plug on books like Love and Respect, you pull the plug on their publisher. Really what we need is some of these publishers to stand up and be like, I'm not going to sell this anymore we have created this monster and the only way we can, we have to uncreate it. And that's kind of what Kristen Demez's, um, Kristen Demez's last line is in her book, like of Jesus and John Wayne, we did this, but we can undo it. And, you know, I think both of us have, we've used similar phrasing like that. Women's historians often do because it Mm -hmm. harkens back to Gerda Lerner. I mean, this is what Gerda Lerner wrote in the creation of patriarchy. And she says, you know, what, what we have made, can be unmade. Yeah. And it's true. We mm-hmm. can unmake this, but we're going, it's going to be hard and we're going to have to pull the plug on a lot of this stuff. And women are going to have to realize that their identity is not in being a wife and a mother and being subordinate, but their identity is in Jesus and what mm-hmm. Jesus has called them to be. And, and again, uh, nothing wrong with being a wife and a mother, nothing wrong no. with being a stay-at-home mom. Yes. <laughs> I was, I was a stay-at-home mom. My mom is a stay-at-home, was a stay-at-home mom. I mean, mm-hmm. lots of people, it's not against doing something. It is saying, do what God calls you to do and yes. what works yes. best for you and your family. And don't limit it by saying that women have certain jobs and men have certain jobs because that's just, mm-hmm. that's culturally constructed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one last question. <laughs> How are you doing? Like, honestly. Um, so I am a pretty optimistic person. My life is a lot bigger than the making of biblical womanhood. I mean, you know, my husband is pastor of a tiny, but very time consuming church. I have two kids. I have a 16, a 17 year old. He just turned 17. I have an 11 year old daughter. Um, I have a job as an associate dean. I'm a professor in the history department. I have five graduate students who need me to read their thesis stuff and want to go to England with me on archive trips. So all of those things make, this is just, this is just one part of my life. And so it helps me keep Mm -hmm. it in perspective. I think that really helps me. It also makes it where I, I can't dwell on this all the time. Because I have right. way too many other things to do. And I have people who I have responsibilities towards. So that yeah. helps a lot. There have been some days and some weeks that yeah. um, this has consumed me in a way and just knocked me off my feet. Um, you know, yeah. I will. I, I'm not. I'm a very transparent person. I mm-hmm. usually 
I don't lie very well. Let's just put it mm-hmm. that way. I don't. Yes. Um, yes. And, and so I just, I'm always for just tell you exactly what I think. And so there have been some dark moments. Um, you know, Kevin yeah. DeYoung's review yes. knocked me off my feet, not because he argued with me. I mean, academics, we argue with each other all the time. It's not mm-hmm. because he argued with me. It was the personal nature of the attack and the bigger implications of what his words meant which yes. are that you can't believe women because women aren't trustworthy. Yeah. And yeah. And I want to, I, I, I do want to drill down on this a little bit because he yeah. was so tremendously unfair to you. I wrote a Twitter thread about it as well. Um, you and I'll link to that. Thank you. Yeah. But you know, he, first of all, he made fun of you for mentioning that you were historian. It's like, how many times have you mentioned that you're a pastor, Kevin? But I appreciate the fact that you were a historian and and to read your book, knowing that this is someone who actually knows what they're talking about is so refreshing. So I thought that was good. And women are, are you're, you're condemned if you don't give your credentials and then you're condemned if you do give your credentials. So there's no well, way to win. You know, what's funny about that too, and a couple of other scholars jumped in and said this, I actually wasn't doing it to show my credentials. I was doing it to show the perspective I was approaching the text from, right. that I'm not yes. that you know, I'm approaching this from a historical perspective. So that's not the way I think. And I, you know, in class, we're like, as historians, we look at yeah. it this way. You know, I'm right. not a, anyway, it's sort of like, to, so it was really funny how he turned that against me. Yeah. Because yeah. I was more using it like to lay my cards on the table that I'm yeah. approaching this from the perspective of a historian. So, and then in the book, you and this was not something you dwelled on, you were not salacious about it in the least, not that there would have been anything wrong if you had been, but you mentioned the fact that you had been abused. And he quoted a verse from Proverbs, which insinuated that unless you know both sides, you can't make a judgment on that. That is, I don't have words for how reprehensible that was. And so what he was insinuating is because you were hurt by patriarchy, you have no right to talk about it. So the only people who have the right to talk about patriarchy are those who have been helped by patriarchy right that's not how it works kevin that's not how it works (laughs) no well and it's you know essentially the only people who have the right to talk about it are those who have benefited from it yeah Uh, yeah but i the thing about it the thing about it is and i'll I'll be honest when i first read that review it came out the same day that a Mm -hmm. great scholar in my field named sarah butler actually named my book as one of the top books on medieval women and said she was assigning it to all of her undergraduates at a, I mean, which says something about Kevin DeYoung trying to go after my scholarly work. When right. another scholar in my field who is a major name is using it and naming it as a top book. So it came out that same day. So it kind of took a little while for it to sink in. And I didn't really fully start reading it till later that day. And when I got to that part, I was just like, yeah. Did he really write this? You know, I was like, yeah. is he so blind that he doesn't understand what he's saying here? Or does he really not care about women? Mm-hmm. And it was shocking. And the other thing is, is that I talked with some people before I wrote more of my background in this. Um, the book, mm-hmm. I was very careful. I didn't name names. Part of this is, is that I'm not going after people. I'm going mm-hmm. after a system mm-hmm. that hurts women. Yes. So in some yes. ways, the details of my personal life are just background to what's going on here. The other thing is, is that this is my story. There are tons of people who in my life who can vouch for it. 
as well as the counselor that I spent several months with, as well as the many women's groups that I actually talked to when I was younger. I actually went and talked to churches and to different sorority groups and stuff about, about what happened to me. So, I mean, this is like so out there. Uh, yeah. But it also wasn't the point of what I was writing. I was just simply making this connection that mm-hmm. ideas matter, that when you teach that women are less than men, you treat women as less than men. And the evidence, as you say, the evidence of love and respect, the fruit mm-hmm. of love and respect, the fruit of these teachings about women are mm-hmm. manifest in the church two movement. Kevin DeYoung's words show why churches are so embroiled in these sex scandals because they dismiss women as credible witnesses, which is opposite of what Jesus did. And because they dismiss our experiences with abuse as being unimportant. Let's remember that Jesus went to a woman who had had a sexual past, who had probably been sexually abused herself and said, you are gonna be the witness to the resurrection and you are gonna be the one who is gonna tell the disciples. His very first work as the resurrected Lord was to appoint women as the first apostles. And that particular woman was a woman with a past. And I mean, if that doesn't say something, I don't know what does. I try to be charitable towards people, but I'm really struggling with him because as I said, there's only two options. Either he is this blind or he does, he's this misogynist. Yeah. And I'm not sure which one is correct. I, I, I would vote for one, but anyway, we'll leave it at that. Um, but, you know, I just, I, I want to say, I, I really appreciate you. I know that um, a lot of people have been equating your book and Kristen's book and my book all together. You know, you talk about the history of the church. Kristen talks about the history of culture and politics. And I'm looking at marriage and sex and how all of these ideas of men being above women and, and, and men's needs being paramount have really impacted um, women's lives. And so I know you, me and Kristen have been trying to get a date to, to do an event together. I'm really looking forward to that. I hope we can get something in September and I will put um, information about that when this podcast comes out, but let's just end on that idea that the only reason that this is allowed to continue in the church is that we're supporting it. Yes. And what would happen if we just stopped? You know, when I wrote that, it was really a pipe dream. I was at Royal Albert Hall. When I was thinking about this, you know, I was just like, if we just stopped doing this, Mm -hmm. it would change the church because the church Mm -hmm. can't survive without women. I don't know. When I wrote it, I just, I didn't really think it might happen, but now Mm -hmm. I'm beginning to think it might happen. And if you're wondering what that may look like, there's an amazing short story by Lucy Mon Montgomery author of Anne of Green Gables. I sent it to you a couple of months ago. I know you read it. I'm going to put a link to it in the podcast notes. It's, it's about the strike at Putney. She wrote it over a hundred years ago, but what happens when women go on strike? And it's yeah. amazing. It's lovely. It will, it will give you a vision for the future, even though it was written over a hundred years ago. And maybe that's the vision that we all need right now. So thank you, Beth, for being here. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And I hope that we can do this again soon. <laughs> This has been really fun. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much, Beth. I'm so glad she could join us. And you know, at the end of each podcast, I normally share some encouragement or an encouraging review for The Great Sex Rescue. But today, I just want to say that when you go to The Great Sex Rescue on Amazon, and when you look at often bought together, so often Beth's 
book, Making Biblical Womanhood, shows up next to The Great Sex Rescue and next to Jesus and John Wayne. So we really are the trifecta. So I think that's really cool. I'm so grateful to Beth. She's a great friend that I've made online, and I hope that I meet her one day in person. But you can talk to all of us, the three of us, Kristen, Beth, and me, on December 6th at 9 p.m. EST. So come join us for the webinar, and we will see you then. And hopefully we will also see you next week for another edition of the Bear Marriage Podcast. Bye-bye.